Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We were practicing. It was the first day that with me on guitar. We were kind of really hyped up for it. You know, what's, what's this band going to sound like with three guitar players anyway? And so... Uh, Gary was sitting there with his guitar, and he was he was playing a riff like this. I remember it was like, and I just I came up with a counter for it, just like this. I mean, it was just it hit me just like a ton of bricks. song was together in, I don't know, 30 minutes. And Come Sail Away is about the idea that, you know, you still want your dreams, you want to be able to escape and get away to someplace better. Well, Kids Are Alright was interesting because what I discovered there was that, was, was that my music needed a link to early English Baroque music. Yeah, I would rather see a girl in, in, a, in a nice push-up bra than I would standing there naked. And then one day, I realized Jimmy Page was a session guy, and he was doing sessions, and it was Sunshine Superman. Eric knew the song for a long time by people like Josh White, but it was the Dylan version on the first Dylan album that sort of captured the attention of everybody. Hi, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. And today we're talking about songs and stories and nothing but songs and stories. Hi, Anita. Well, hey, Danny, you know, I've never written a song. I don't really know how that happens, uh, but many epic songwriters were successful in the early years of their career and they wrote songs in their sleep, they said, or they wrote songs uh, they don't remember writing and then couldn't really write much after that. And I think it's just such a fascinating gift or skill to possess. So I'm really happy that we're getting to some of those stories that I frankly had never heard before. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. I couldn't, uh, my son writes songs, he's in a band. And that fascinates me that you can actually sit there and he scribbles out some stuff and he doesn't, you know, like, like the next couple of days, he's got the song done. So, well, a anyway. couple of my friends are probably thinking, well, why don't you tell about the song you wrote for Patti Smith? I mean, I can write funny songs yeah. that are like takeoffs on other songs. Yeah. So, you know, I wrote Patti Smith a song called Old Man in a Cadillac. Why do you drive so slow? Why do you drive so slow? You know, that kind of thing. But that, but besides that, I've never really written a song. Well, yeah. And I didn't see any of your stuff in the vault. Uh, no, I went into not, the vault and found all these the stories. And I didn't see anything uh, about your song. So anyway, this is uh, these are specific songs and how they got written, recorded, discovered, whatever. And I realized I got a whole backlog of these. So I figured, you know, let's let's pick a bunch of songs. And uh, I think this is going to be a recurring theme. We should be able to do uh, every once in a while one of these because I love this uh, this type of show. Anyway, we're going to start out with um, Leonard Skinnerd uh, and Ed King one of the guitarists for Leonard Skinner and main songwriters, incidentally. He joined the band in time uh, for their first album, uh, but he was the one who had an experience because he had been in the Strawberry Alarm Clock. 
Oh man. I, mean, I love that song. From I love that. Yes. We, we say song because I think that's, it's not a one hit wonder band by any means, but it's the one song that we all that we remember. remember incense and peppermints. Denny, can we just hear like a snippet of it? Well, I never got to play that on the air, sadly, but one song involving Ed King that I played all the time was that song that I think you can say defines the sound of Leonard Skinnerd. So uh, Ed King was uh, one third of the three guitar army. That was part of the trademark uh, Skinnerd sound, in 1974. Well, luckily Ed King left Leonard Skinnerd shortly before the plane crash in '77. But then he rejoined when they reformed in the uh, '80s. They didn't really reform; they reformed. Uh, that was '87 <laughs> to '89, and Ed lived till 2018. That's uh, the year that he passed away. Yeah, you know, I want to say something about this because uh, this interview uh, that we the clip is from an interview we did when he was living in New Jersey and not in the band this is in between and i it was like the guy leaves the band like six months before that plane crash so i was wondering what he was up to and he was selling insurance i'm sure it was a sophisticated thing it's not that he was poor or anything and he had a christian um rock band or a christian well yeah you know that makes sense because so if you, he had if, been yeah. totally converted by of not course. being in there and who then he went have? back and rejoined okay just right like, who wouldn't have Next, we have a great story from Randy Bachman, founding member of the Guess Who and uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, two monster bands. And remember taking care of business. It was used by Office Depot. I mean, he made a fortune. I remember he told me one day he's, he's married like four or five times. And he goes, yeah, my first wife gets the money from the Guess Who. And my second wife gets the Bachman Turner money and my third <laughs> wife. So he, he's a very funny guy. We, we got to have him on. Yeah. Uh, at some point, he's 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 just a great uh, person to have on the story about American Woman, which uh, is a song released in January 1970 from their sixth album. It was uh, later released as a single back with uh, No Sugar Tonight, and it reached number one for three weeks. I was on stage in Kitchener, Waterloo uh, in a curling rink. You know, it's ice and you slide these rocks down the ice down to a target it's a canadian sport and there was a dance so they put plywood on the ice and you know the middle of the winter and we were doing a three-hour dance and uh, i i was playing 59 less paul i broke a string at the time and being a dance burton Cummings said randy broke a string we're going to take a break talks amongst yourself you know and they were selling popcorn at the dance and we'll be right back so the band left the stage. I put on a new E string on my Les Paul. I didn't have a tech, guitar tech or a tuner or a spare guitar. So I put the string on myself. I knelt in front of Burton Cummings' electric piano on stage and was hitting the notes and tuning my guitar to it. And when I got my guitar pretty close in tune, I started to play. And all the audience who was talking amongst themselves, I noticed heads jerking in the audience looking at me. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a riff. I can't forget this riff. i got to play it over and over. And I remember standing up and playing the, the riff and looking around. Can anyone else in the band 
join me on this. And Gary Peterson, the drummer, came up, started to play the drums. Then Jim Kale came up, and Burton Cummings was way at the back of the hall talking to a bunch of his friends of the of the hockey rink. And I saw him come up on stage, and by then the, the riff was going with the rhythm and everything. And I said, play something. And he played a harmonica solo, then a flute solo, then a piano solo. I did a guitar solo. And finally I yelled to him, sing something. And it being a jam session, he said, well, what do I sing? And I said, sing anything. Because I knew that once we got lyrics to that riff, then I would remember the riff because I was so terrified that I'd forget it the minute I stopped playing it because it was so simple. And the first words out of his mouth was, American woman, stay away from me. American woman, stay away from me. We soloed. He sang it again. It was over. The next time we repeated it and he said, wow, I've got a couple lines to put in. How about, I don't want your war machines. I don't want your ghetto scenes. And I said, wow, that's great. Cause it was the middle of the Vietnam war at that time. And we recorded the song, uh, you know, a month or so later, went to number one in the trades and number one album. That was like our big song. It was fantastic. Best cover, Anita? Oh, no contest, Lenny Kravitz. Let's hear a little of that. So, Denny, yes. in, your, in your humble opinion, yes. uh, what do you think is the definitive Led Zeppelin sound? Well, I, I think as far as dynamics and what they what Jimmy does, and it, it's got to be Cashmere. And I, I know a lot of people are going to go, wait a minute, it's got to be Stairway. Now, I, I think Cashmere is the definitive song from Physical Graffiti. If you want to know the origin of the song, here it is. Following the 75 tour, Jimmy and I, uh, we finished off, after playing in America, we played for a week at Earl's Court in London, which was quite a, an achievement. And uh, we just had to get away, so we went to Morocco. And it was great to get away, and especially as Jimmy, I don't think I'd been to Morocco before. It was good for me to show him places that I'd been to in the kind of, and the kind of hubbub of Marrakesh, chaos. And then we headed south into Tantan, towards Tantan, which is where the the edge of the Spanish, the Mauritanian Spanish Sahara war with Morocco had been was later to go on. And somehow or another, the, the lyrics to Kashmir developed along that road somewhere. Well, that song, that Kashmir, <laughs> while not <laughs> as popular as Stairway, is obviously a favorite. Uh, many musicians uh, cover it. I, you know, I love a good cover. Yeah. And I uh, put up with a bad cover. <laughs> uh, and there have been some covers of Kashmir. Uh, my favorite is a surprising choice. Uh, Dave Matthews Band does it more than justice. It's I never even, before I heard it, I would never have been able to imagine it, but it's yeah. on YouTube. If you Me want too. to check it out, that's a great one. Yeah, and is. then Jeff Buckley, um, there's a hilarious live performance from Jeff Buckley. And uh, there was also, after I watched that uh, he does cashmere on 45 speed instead of on 33 <laughs> oh, to 30. Kidding. I don't know it's, that. No, it's brilliant. And then there's a mm -hmm. Robert plant interview that comes up right after it. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, Robert talking about uh, how much he admired uh, Jeff Buckley and how he saw him live and it just blew wow. him away. And if, if you want to hear a serious. Well, wait a minute. Before you mention that, I, I just read in the paper 
that they're doing uh, a movie about the life of Jeff Buckley. Wow. I don't have the info on it. Maybe we can get that and give it in a future show. Well, I have one of the rare interviews with him. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. And uh, it was lost for years because when they left, one of his guys, his goons, uh, hit the tape deck and took the cassette and put it in his pocket. So it was, I never thought it existed. And then we, there was a fan page or a listener page for KSCA radio and uh, somebody had it and gave it to me and uh, I'll happily repost it. It's uh, it's, it's, it tells a lot about Jeff in that interview. He was royally pissed off and incredibly brilliant at the same time. We'll use a bit on one of the shows and we'll post the rest of it then. Well, he, he, he does a serious when the levee breaks, if you want to hear a great. Yeah. Now you told me about Puff Daddy's cover, really a mashup of uh, come with me. And then Jimmy, did you see that on Saturday night? I didn't see it and I did listen to it, but Denny, (laughs) I did not dig it. Oh, sorry. Okay. (laughs) Uh, okay. Uh, yes, it is on the YouTube. If you want to oh, check, it yeah. out. check it out, maybe I it was every- the fact that seeing Jimmy page. No, Puff Daddy no, together. It was all, no, I, I never cared for Puff Daddy there. I said it. Okay. Sorry. All right, all right. I'm sailing away. Set an open course for the virgin sea. Sticks did not get a nomination to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this past year. And this band still tours and you still have founding member uh, Dennis DeYoung playing some shows as the music of Sticks with Dennis DeYoung. So you got them and you got the band out there. And Dennis wrote this particular song, which uh, peaked at number eight in January 1978 from The Grand Illusion. And it's had tremendous longevity in popular culture. It still pops up in commercials. It was arguably as popular in the 1980s as it was when released uh, in 1978. A Sail Away was, uh, you know, it was a, a point in my life where I was very de- depressed about, um, I guess, about the realization of a dream. Sometimes the realization of a dream is just as bad as not ever realizing it in that you find that the dream was, you know, mostly hot air in the first place. And Come Sail Away is about the idea that, you know, you still want your dreams. You want to be able to escape and get away to someplace better. But, um, you know, the guy, the guy in the song is he's reflecting. He's looking back and he's trying to think about what is it that brought him to the, this point in his life, you know. He talks about his childhood friends and their dreams and uh, the pot of gold. And uh, he didn't get the pot of gold because there never was one in the first place. Get Together was a hit for the Youngbloods, and I'm sure that I'm not alone in thinking uh, that Jesse Colin Young wrote it, but he didn't. Um, it was actually written by Chester Powers Jr., a.k.a. Dino Valenti, a.k.a. Jesse Oris Farrow. Uh, he <laughs> was quite a character. He was one of the lead singers in Quicksilver Messenger Service, a band that Denny and I both love. And uh, he wrote two amazing songs, in our humble opinions, Fresh Air mm-hmm. and What About Me? Um, mm-hmm. My God, he could, you know, that right. would have been enough, but called the song Let's Get Together when he wrote it. 
and his career suffered, his life suffered uh, due to several drug busts that are just unthinkable in, in this day and age. He actually got a one to 10 year sentence and was sent to Folsom Prison. And to pay for his defense, I know I'm a basketball <laughs> fan, to okay. pay for his defense, he sold the publishing rights for Get Together to the manager of the Kingston Trio, who had a big hit with it. And uh, sadly, um, he passed away in 1994. And you know so, he got he got five hundred dollars for it because that's what his man, dad was. Wow, that's so so sad all the way around. Yeah, but we do have two stories on this one, and because uh, lots of people have covered it now, Jesse Colin Young, who of course was the leader of the Youngbloods, uh, first uh, heard the song played by a guy named Buzzy Linhart. Those of you that don't know, Buzzy's best known for writing "You Got to Have Friends" for Bette Midler. And he was on the New York folk scene for many years. Influential. Died about a year or two ago. I, I got to see him a couple of times live. Yeah, he was Inter- big and Interesting Philly. character. Yeah. Yeah. He would come loved to, him. Yeah, exactly. Let's hear uh, Jesse first, and uh, then we'll hear the other story. I don't know the full story. I mean, I had never even heard the Kingston Trio version until my, my heart doctor said, he's a big Kingston Trio fan. Right. You know, they recorded that three years before you did. I said, really? The Kingston Trio? And there it was. Um, and he said, wait a minute. And he went and got his phone <laughs> and he played me the Kingston Trio. And it, they kind of made it sound like Sloop John B. And, uh, you know, the airplane did it and Crosby did an acoustic version when he was very young that was released somewhere. And other people, um, I didn't hear any of that stuff. I'd never heard that song till the night, the afternoon, actually. It was an open mic. I walked into the go-go. I thought it might be dark and we could start rehearsing. I called a band and I heard music. Normally I would have turned around, you know, and gone home and worked on song. But for some reason, there's two flights down. I did not. And I hit the bottom of the stairs. Buzzy was on stage playing Get Together. And uh, my life changed. I mean, just like in the movies about biblical times and the sky opens up, I mean, that really happened to me. That song I knew was my future. The lyrics are so beautiful. It is almost bibliographical about my life, the struggle between love and fear. Um, And I ran backstage and that's it. He was done. Hmm. And so I ran backstage, introduced myself, got the lyrics from him that took it into rehearsal with the Youngbloods the next day. What did yeah. the band think when you first played it to them? They embraced it because when I listen to the record now, I hear the band working, you know, it didn't always work. And eventually like all bands, it fell apart, but right. it was working then. There's a lot of magic. I remember someone from BAI, I was talking to him uh, in New York, the public radio station. He said, there's something very pure about this recording of Get Together. You know, it was five and a half minutes. There was nobody from upstairs at RCA in there saying, let's do this and let's do that and make it more commercial. I mean, it was, they never touched it because it was five and a half minutes. It was so for for us, it was an art piece. And my love belief in that message, I think is what makes it special. I'm still there. I'm more there than I was then. Incidentally, Jesse has a new album out, a return to his roots with his new acoustic album, Highway Troubadour. And I just got a call from one of the guys in his uh, entourage or whatever that said they're going to announce a tour. As soon as this pandemic gets over, they're going to do a, uh, 
a highway troubadour tour and they're going to go across route 66 is it and stop along the way and play a show that's a great continue on so i'm there i'm there (laughs) well you also spoke to david freiberg he tours with the starship jefferson starship these days uh they still have that song that song in their set and uh, david who was a founding member of Quicksilver Messenger Service. But then I think they were just called Quicksilver after yep. a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shortly after, Dino, uh, he had recently hired all the guitarists and the drummer for his backing band, but then Dino went to prison. And then mm-hmm. that's how Quicksilver started. So anyway, this is David's recollection. Dino wrote it. Dino wrote it. I was, my story about it is that I, Paul Kantner and I had, were living in San Jose and kind of running a folk club and occasionally I'd have to go down to Los Angeles to find something I don't know if I can say it now but it's legal now it's legal legal now now. but anyway I went down and I don't remember whether I found anything or not but a friend of mine named Cyrus Farriar I don't know whether you ever heard of Mm -hmm. the modern folk quartet Mm -hmm. anyway so I, I dropped by his house just to say hi and probably smoke a joint or two and, and talk to him and Dino came tearing in with his guitar and said you gotta hear this and he plays get together and Cyrus and I look at each other and say man that was an insanely good song man now how did that go <laughs> you know and you know I took it back to San Jose yeah, but, oh, it sounded really good Well, all through the 70s, Aerosmith toured, they were everywhere, constant touring. Uh, If you had like a bar with six chairs, you could have booked Aerosmith, you know. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But they really broke through in 1975 with Walk This Way from Toys in the Attic. And uh, here's Steven Tyler discussing the song. There was some interest shown by some mothers somewhere about lyrics, and they used an Aerosmith song as an example of what of of how lyrics should be and it's funny the song was walk this way which if you listen to it i just really cleverly put uh backstroke lover always high underneath the cover till i talked to my daddy said said you ain't seen nothing till you're down on a muffin then you sure to be changing your ways i met a cheerleader was a real young bleeder all the times i could reminisce the best thing of loving with her sister and her cousin only started with a little kiss like this and it was just so ironic that they would pick that song as, as there's a there's a better way of, of saying it. It's for instance, yeah, I would rather see a girl in in uh, in, in uh, garter belt stockings and and a nice push up bra than I would standing there naked. Uh, that's just always been my style. So so to kind of cloak and dagger a song is is more what I think Aerosmith is all about. <laughs> Well, I guess we should talk about uh, this updated version with Run DMC that uh, revived Aerosmith's career. And they actually won a Soul Train Award for Best Rap Single. It should have been uh, uh, an award for Least Likely to Happen or something, or like WTF Award or something like that. (laughs) But uh, Steve, well, we got Steven Tyler. Let's listen to him again. You know, I've always had the feeling where I can't, uh, I can't believe that the human race does what they do to other races because they're black, yellow, red, or whatever. I can understand how things come about 
but I just don't, I don't know where people find it in their hearts to do it. It's just something I can't understand. And, and, and talking to me the way black people do, what I read from black people is that, that, that some white people must be afraid of them because they give away a lot of heart. They're real people, not because they've been suppressed and put down or all those other things. It's because they really are real. They're like tight, like the Jews and the Italians. And, and I've always had a, an affinity for, for the blacks. And whenever I hear anything or I have a chance to do anything I can with them, bingo, I'm there. Especially with the rhythm and singing that they got, forget it. Um, soulful and spirituality, I'm there. Uh, when it came to the Run DMC thing, it was perfect. They were rapid, been out for a couple years, but no one caught on to it. Uh, we went down there, and it was Joe. It was all it was with Drum Machine and Rick Rubin, and those three guys, four guys. And uh, and and I said, "Where's the guitars? Who's playing?" He said, "Well, we're going to rent a couple." Joe put the lead guitar. Joe played the bass, and I did the singing. And. Uh, and it just it worked out real good. Those guys sang over it, left my vocal on. So in, in actuality, it was, a, it was an Aerosmith song with them rapping it. So it was just great enough because it was Aerosmith, just bad enough because rap hadn't hit it. And that great and bad mixed together, I just took the chance. And we just knew. It just something was magic about it, you know, that, that you know, it was just magic. That it was, that it was just those two elements enough to be fantastic and great. And it worked. Plus, when the video came out, we broke down the walls between black and white, visually, and bingo, anything I can do like that, I'm in. But I Pete Townsend is always a great interview, one of my favorite people. Uh, I asked him about writing The Kids Are All Right. And he went into this whole thing about the musical styles that he explored and where his roots uh, came from that enabled him to write the song. And if it was anybody else, I probably would have edited it down. But you know what? It's Pete Townsend and it's great. Well, Kids Are All Right was interesting because what I discovered there was that my music needed a link to early English Baroque music. And, and yeah. um, you know, I was helped with that with uh, Kit Lambert, who was my manager. F folk music, to me, seemed to be Celtic, Scottish, Welsh, Irish. It didn't seem... I couldn't find English folk music. I couldn't find any connection with anything that ran with my genes that set my genes alive in, you know, that kind of concertina playing that accompanies Morris dancers and their jangling thing. You know, I couldn't yeah. find it. And... Um, and I couldn't really find any English music at all. And um, Kit Lambert's father was Constant Lambert, who was an English composer himself around the time of William Wharton, so in the 20s, you know, mm -hmm. with people like Delius and Rafe Vaughan Williams and, those, 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 and, and following Elgar, you know, mm -hmm. that, that kind of period of, uh, of modernist writing. And some of those, like Rafe Vaughan Williams, were people who had looked at... English folk music for, for inspiration. And Gustav Holtz, of course, is another one, although not English, I don't think, lived in England. And, and, um, and what Kit did was he helped me by, by telling me about what his father had done by going back and looking at the British composers like um, Purcell, principally, but and a number of others that were around at the time. Purcell was a chorister, uh, a choir master, sorry, a choir master for, for Henry VII, I think. So his music was for the court. But it was all done on a budget, 
And there was something about it that when I first was introduced to it, and I remember I'd already heard all the blues and I'd been brought up with dance music, but I'd never really heard this stuff properly. I thought it was kind of churchy stuff, and I started to listen to it. And what I found in it was something that really touched the spot with me, triggered me. And what it was was the suspended fourth. You know, that's what we call it as musicians. It's that da-da-da-da that you get at the end of a hymn. You know, amen. The, the, uh, the, it's a, a suspended fourth. And it helps you hang suspended too. And I started to introduce it. And I think Kids Were Right is the first time I ever used it. I think it's the first time I ever used it. There may have been one or two times before that I experimented. But with that, I used it brutally all the way through. And it's and it somehow what was so extraordinary about it is is that America loved it. Now, isn't that weird? I don't really quite know why. You know, I mean, because it's a very pure Baroque tonality. It's certainly it's certainly not used at all in any Jewish music. And remember that popular music in America was deeply, deeply, almost like klezmer, you know, yeah. uh, uh, influence. I don't want to come across too musicological. I, you know, that song for me was the time that I kind of linked up with something that was quintessentially English, and, yeah. and then I walked forward with that. Let's talk about Donovan. Now, when he came out, they compared him to Dylan, you might remember. In fact, if you've ever seen the uh, D.A. Pennybaker uh, film, Don't Look Back, which, in my opinion, is the best documentary film ever shot. But anyway, it's a uh, documentary. <laughs> no, it's uh, very docu- good. No, it's very good. It, it is. It is. Uh, it is. But you know, I think I you think have to remember how young Dylan was. And yeah, that's probably I think, the magic. Uh, yeah. Magic. And I, I think what we, yeah, he just comes off looking like a bit of a dick and I don't really yeah. think he, but anyway, okay. It's so, a yeah. documentary of Dylan's 65 touring. Right. And near the start of the film, Dylan opens a newspaper and exclaims, Donovan, who's this, who's this Donovan? And throughout the film, Donovan's name is seen next to Dylan's on newspaper headlines and on posters in the background. And Dylan and his friends refer to him consistently. Uh, You know, so are you a fan? Oh my God. I am a Donna fan. Are you kidding? (laughs) I, I, those songs catch the wind. I can't even tell you the emotional experiences and Jennifer Juniper, which was written for Jenny Boyd, by the way, Patty Boyd's sister. Right. That's Um, right. And Jenny was quite the character married twice to Mick Fleetwood. I mean, who marries him twice? Right. And then mellow yellow, which is just ridiculously simple and beautiful and crazy and so much of the time. And then did you realize, cause I never realized that Donovan wrote season of the witch. Yeah, of course. I had, I, I forgot sure. about that because yeah. his, you know, his version wasn't the one that. That was the 40 minute version by the Almond brothers. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, they, they could stretch it out. Uh, but yeah, I think it was the Al Cooper super session version. That people, yes. That's the yeah. one that right. And, uh, in September of 1966, uh, to show you what Sunshine Superman did, um, it hit number one and it stayed there for a week. And Donovan originally subtitled the song uh, for John and Paul because he wanted to get the Beatles' attention. And here's Donovan with another fact about Sunshine Superman that I didn't know. And then one day I realized Jimmy Page was a session guy and he was doing sessions. And I was a lucky guy because one day he gets booked for my session. And it was Sunshine Superman. And when Page came in, he actually had the music laid out for him and uh, riffs uh, suggested by John Cameron. And Mickey Most was my producer. 
on this extraordinary breakthrough album called Sunshine Superman. And that's when I first met Jimmy in the studio, and I realized great guitar players love Donovan songs because they're quirky, they're built on unusual rhythm patterns. Anita, I know you like the animals. So this story is about their version of House of the Rising Sun. Now, Hilton Valentine, an original member of the group, confirms that they originally heard Bob Dylan's version. Um, did you ever hear Dylan's version? Let, let's I hear have, a little snippet. Uh, yeah, let's let's hear a little. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call. After the animals heard that, they added the now famous electric guitar, a minor chord arpeggio, it's a little thing here, and uh, made it a classic. Here's Hilton Valentine. Eric knew the song for a long time by people like Josh White, but it was the Dylan version on the first Dylan album that sort of captured the attention of everybody. We decided to try it. I don't know how I came up with that arpeggio thing. It's just something that was picked up from rock and roll days like uh, Diana, uh, Paul Anker. So I just started doing that and then went from there, really. Interesting story on this. Uh, The vocalist is a guy named Roy Harper. More on him in a moment. This is David Gilmore's explanation of Have a Cigar. One would meet an awful lot of record company people who would have that sort of have a cigar mentality, and uh, I don't know quite uh, what made Rogers start writing that one, but um, it was a very, very common thing in which we used to amuse ourselves with endlessly um, to prevent ourselves from being driven mad with rage about it by the... Uh, we had we had people who would say to us, you know, which one's pink and stuff like that. They genuinely would. They think there were an awful lot of people who thought Pink Floyd was the name of the lead singer. So back to Roy Harper. He told me uh, Gilmore promised him a fee for singing, but so far he hasn't been paid. And can you imagine that's what he's known for in this country, being the vocalist on that album. But anyway, I ran into Roy Harper and I asked him about it. And this is what he said. I asked him if he got paid. But uh, the friendship continued with Dave until, you know, until uh, I pointed out the, um, uh, the debt and it's cooled off since then, about 1990. But we still know each other, you know. It's still... No, I still haven't been paid, no. It's not likely to be this, this uh, junction. And, you, you know, the, the Pink Floyd are, you know, laws unto themselves. I think, uh, I think it's don't go there. Let's not go there anymore. Okay, got to include the Rolling Stones. So here's Mick Jagger on Undercover of the Night, and he even mentions Charlie, something he rarely does. When we did Undercover of the Night, we just recorded it with uh, me playing guitar and Charlie playing timpani and bass, and one percussionist going... Uh, And then we put everyone on afterwards... 
which was Keith's idea, rather than having everyone play, because it was just so much going on, we couldn't figure out, you know, if it was right or wrong. And then we just lay- sort of layered it, that one. When it was actually played, it was very simple. Um, and we have a version of it which is similar, but which we were going to put on the album. And then we said, well, no, because it was one of the first things we did as a mix. And then when we, after we'd been mixing in a week or so, we, we went back to it and said, well, let's do something different. And so we did that version, and we said, well, that's much more direct than the one we had, and much more stripped down, and, and plus it had defects and things like that, which weren't there. Well, Mick has said that the song was heavily influenced by a number of drugs. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and an in-excess record. No, um, he said it was heavily influenced by uh, William Burroughs' Cities of the Red Knight. William Burroughs, of course, inspiring Patti Smith and Steely Dan and so many uh, musicians and other creative people. Yeah, well, um, and they don't do that in concert that often. I don't think I've ever seen them do it. No, I, I think uh, probably um, at least two members of the band have it in their contract that they're, they, they, they don't have to play that. <laughs> okay. That right. was a Mick okay. moment. <laughs> All right. Now, now, now it's time for the elephant in the room. Okay. And let me just uh, preface this. Uh, I, I recently spoke to a guy named Mark Andes. Now, if that name isn't familiar, he's an original member of the band Spirit. He was a founder of the band Firefall, and he spent uh, 10 years in heart. So he's got a resume. By the way, Firefall is reformed. They just put out an album and they're touring, which is why I was uh, I ran into him and we were were talking. But I hadn't uh, he hadn't talked about he's the one um, that started or initiated the lawsuit on behalf of Randy California against Led Zeppelin. Okay, this is the most famous lawsuit, musically speaking. Anyway, this is the first time Mark has spoken about this since the trial ended in Led Zeppelin's favor. Anita, do you have background on Randy California? Well, oh, my God, Randy California. uh, This is a biopic waiting to happen. Randy's family founded the Ash Grove, which was a prominent folk club uh, in Los Angeles. And when he was 15 years old, his mother got remarried to a man called Ed Cassidy. Now, Ed Cassidy was a jazz drummer, and his first band in 1964 was uh, Ed, Taj Mahal, and Ry Cooter. Right. <laughs> they call themselves the Red Roosters. And in 1965, he and Jay Ferguson and Mark Andes and John Locke became Spirit. Uh, so he's like this kid. I, I can't think of a younger, maybe Tommy Stinson was younger in replacements, but I can't think of a younger guy that was in a band with a bunch of older guys, especially his stepfather. Yeah, right. And they became Spirit, and they relocated to New York. And uh, that's where Randy met Jimi Hendrix. And um, he actually played in Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And his mother and Ed lived in the apartment building in Forest Hills, Queens, that Walter Becker also lived. I mean, does you know, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> but uh, then his uh, Life took a sad turn. Randy drowned trying to rescue his 12-year-old son in the ocean in Hawaii. Um, The son lived. This was in 1997, but sadly, uh, Randy did drown. And um, yeah, so uh, right, that's a biopic that I would definitely watch. Uh, Absolutely. And just just so you know, and and by the way, I went in extensively with Mark on that, and we'll hear it on a future show about the early days of Spirit and everything. But just one of those stories 
and I think you probably picked this up, is, you know, when he ran into Jimi Hendrix at Manny's Music Store, um, that's where they met, as, as you said. But uh, when uh, Hendrix asked him to play in his band, right. he said, I have this other guy named Randy. So uh, you're you're from California. You're Randy, California. Right. OK. And he'll be the other Randy. And that's yeah, how he so, got his name. Yeah. So Jimmy gave him that name. Right. And um, in true uh, Jewish boy fashion, and I had Jewish parents, so I'm allowed to say this. Uh, when Jimmy asked him to tour, uh, his parents wouldn't let him go. Right. Mine wouldn't let me go to Woodstock. Okay. We were too young. So that, and of course you, you listened to your parents, you didn't go. So that, that was, <laughs> that really hit home with me. So here I'm, I'm really excited for us to have this. This is Mark's uh, first telling of the story. Plus there's a little connection here, which I better put in because, uh, you know, I have this book out, uh, get the let out by Led Zeppelin. And uh, it's funny. And you'll hear him say this. He originally heard about i mean he knew the story obviously but he heard uh, about it uh because my book goes through it and i i was on the howard stern show uh anyway let me let me just play this because it's too complicated here here it is this is mark andy's taurus i want to talk about first of all it was recorded for the first album do you remember the first time it was brought to the session and what who decided to to record it because it's a basically a, like a what a 90 second instrumental that's yeah. from the first record. I don't think anybody like a, focused on it at the time, right? Well, it was just a sweet little vignette. And, and that was the only thing that Randy wrote for the first record, if, if, if you think about it. So it was special in that way. And, and we would play it, you know, and uh, we it was just something that we, we would bust into if, if the mood mm-hmm. uh, called for it. So it was. So we did the, uh, uh, we played the song, John with the harpsichord solo and, and did it like we would do in a, in, a, in a performance. And then Lou had Marty Page um, do this beautiful ring arrangement and, and uh, flute, I mean, just an orchestra basically. And it, and it really just created a vibe. And I think that's what we were trying to say Mm-hmm. in the lawsuit was it <clears throat> not only is it is it so musically similar but the vibe and the way it starts is so similar and i was in favor of of uh the of us doing the lawsuit i i, I think we've got out lawyer but i at least i am grateful that randy got he got his story told i mean he that interview he did several interviews on that this very topic and that those got really widely distributed so i know that as his bud right his story got told by him (laughs) i was just about to say for those that don't know but of course that's ridiculous everybody knows about this (laughs) i want to know what your involvement is because you initiated it how did you first what made you decide to do it now i know there was i know a little of the backstory okay well (laughs) i was i was approached by a journalist he came to my house he had a beautiful book uh, with, right. with the, the, the with the this guy who was on uh, the uh, Howard Stern show. He played the Howard Stern. I mean, he just totally laid it out, and and I thought, well, and and I left Spirit, I, and I knew that 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 everybody f- felt that that uh, Jimmy borrowed that from Randy, but I left the band, and I thought, well, Randy, it's his song, you know. 
Right. You do what you're going to do with it, whatever. But in it, and I'm, I was sitting right here where I am right now. And I went, God, if I don't fucking do something now, this is, this is going to, it, it, it will, no one will know. So I thought, well, if, 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 if I, I am able to uh, make this lawsuit happen, I would be glad to. And, and it went from there and we got a lawyer involved and he, uh, he's got, he's a warrior. And, and I, it's, I think it's, finally decided against randy but but that but you know i i I didn't have any but you shown the light on it and that's what now 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 right i'm gonna tell you something that's gonna blow you away okay sure i'm the guy on howard stern that's my book get the let out i'm the guy that started the whole thing i went on howard i i I played here's, here's what happened this is really good so denny put together this whole led zeppelin thing that we're talking about remember a couple of months ago we talked about how led zeppelin ripped everything off but denny's like the world's expert on all this shit. and how did you discover this i mean do you well, have such a, a catalog of music in your head that you knew yes i am the, I, he's I mean, a leading musicologist this is my area of expertise i'm the world's leading expert in classic rock oh, and i could help create the original classic rock concept so, all right. Just letting you know. So all these facts and figures have been in my head for years. What's this Taurus doing Taurus? This is oh, this is the Stairway to Heaven. Stairway to Heaven. That you and there's a great backstory on this. And, stairway to Heaven is their biggest. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is Taurus. This is Taurus. Now, we all know the hit song. If you go to... Oops. Wow. That really is just a brilliant cover. Well, I was reading um, an article by a writer called uh, Mark Beaumont uh, talking about the 50th anniversary of Stairway to Heaven. And he cited a few songs, uh, Genesis's uh, Supper's Ready, Aerosmith's Dream On, and Queen's uh, what I like to call boho rap, as he put it, Sloped slyly up Zepp's back staircase. <laughs> oh man, I haven't heard so, that one. Yeah, so I guess in terms of whose side you come out on on this thing, I mean, whether you believe that Taurus by Spirit was the quote unquote inspiration for Stairway, if you believe that, you know, it's well, just now remember. Remember that uh, Zeppelin were big fans of Spirit, and if you look right. at the set list right. and on how the West was won, they covered two Spirit songs. Right. And when they first came over to play under Vanilla Fudge, the middle act was Spirit, and the next act was Iron Butterfly, and then Led Zeppelin. So they saw them play. They right. had the opportunity, right. you know, all that stuff. So it's well, all yeah. There. So so it's up. I, you know, it's up to each person. I think right. to figure out whether it's an homage, it's an whether thing. it's an opening yeah. riff, whether it's an out. And I think the bigger issue is whether not whether or not it is, but whether or not he deserves writing credit. That's yeah. the big. That's issue. right. That's so, right. You know, we'd love to know those of you who are fans of Led Zeppelin, those of you who just tuned into the podcast because you love music, those of you who are in the legal profession. <laughs> no, we would love to know what you, you could think. do a whole show on stairway. Well, <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Let's see how this goes first. But yeah. um, <laughs> this is our version of uh, we, we decided yeah, you we're going to have this thing Let, called cases of rock and roll. We want to know your opinion. You know, did they do you side with Mark Andes or do you side 
with Led Zeppelin. Right. Do you so think that, Mark should get writing credits or do you think that uh, Led Zeppelin, maybe they heard it, maybe they didn't, it doesn't matter. It's not the same song. So we invite you to go to our website and vote, right? There'll be a place where you yep. can vote and then yep. we'll let you know what the vote tally is. And uh, we'll hire some lawyers and we'll take it back. <laughs> we'll take it back into the court again. No, actually, that's over with. It's done. If you haven't heard, um, it's over. For now, it's over. Well, I think once it hits the appeals court, it might be over. But uh, no well, money. No, you, be- wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know that this, this it's a never ending? appeals once already. Oh, so it's a never ending. It can go again. But I'm he doesn't sure. want to do it. No, he I'm sure that wherever there is justice to be done, there are a team of lawyers waiting to get paid yes, yes. to try to keep it from happening. So I'm sure that's the case. And we'll all be I back. I know the lawyer soon. that is. He happens yeah. to be from Philadelphia. Right. So let us know what you think. Um, vote on the podcast, therockpodcast.com. And where else can they find us, Denny? On Instagram, on Facebook, or drop us a line. Hello at therockpodcast.com. All right. We'll see you next so, time. I think that's it for today. Bye, Bye. everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.